Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are exploring the changing rules of business leadership and how CEOs are navigating this change. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Michal Avram. Alan, for the next month, some of the best athletes in the world are going to be competing against each other in soccer matches across Australia and New Zealand in pursuit of the Women's World Cup. Have you uh, been tuning into the matches, Alan? Do you plan to watch? I haven't, but I will. I'm sitting here in downtown Manhattan. I was at the parade they had uh, after their uh, big victory, which was one of the things that propelled this movement. This will be the first World Cup the women are playing since they publicly fought for and won their pursuit of equal pay. Uh, And it's also the first World Cup where the broadcast rights to women's games weren't just slotted in as a freebie for signing on to air the men's tournament. So it's an important step forward for uh, women's sports. Yeah, um, I don't think anybody is saying that FIFA is perfect, uh, (laughs) for sure. Uh, We are not saying that either. But, you know, it seems like um, they they got the picture. There have been some really significant changes. Um, People are watching women's sports. 1.1 billion people tuned into the 2019 World Cup. The WNBA's TV audience is up almost 70% from this point wow. last season. Um, wow. And this year's Women's March Madness Championship game between LSU and Iowa was the most watched women's college basketball game ever, drawing in nearly 10 million viewers. So our guest on Leadership Next today has a lot to say about all of that, has been involved in all of that. She thinks the interest has always been there. People just haven't been given the chance to indulge in it. And she thinks she can make money off of it. Our guest today is investor Karen Nortman, who's co-founder of the sports equity investment fund Monarch Collective and co-founder and co-owner of LA's Angel City Football Club. And Kara, by the way, is an athlete herself. She's a former competitive roarer, a lifelong sports fan, basketball player. She decided to start Monarch Collective after she and her daughters attended an exhilarating Women's World Cup finals in 2015. They left the stadium and like any fan would, they were trying to buy the jerseys of her favorite players and find places to stream more soccer games, women's soccer games. And they literally couldn't find any other outlet for their fandom. So it really started as a passion project. Um, she and her Monarch Collective co-founder, Jasmine Robinson, decided to change this. Uh, Monarch Collective is working to make sure a woman's sports fan never finds themselves in that position again. The fund opened in March, raised $100 million for its debut. Uh, it invests in women's sports teams, leagues, adjacent businesses like gaming and media. And Monarch Collective, by the way, is not Kara's only foray into the women's sports world. She's also a co-founder alongside Natalie Portman and Julie Ehrman of Los Angeles's NWSL team, the Angel City Football Club. Um, The team's already making waves in the professional sports world. Almost every game in their 2022 debut season sold out, and 95% of season ticket holders renewed for this season. Another cool thing about Angel City is that Kara and her team require their investors to put initiatives in their investments that will benefit the city of Los Angeles as a whole. So beyond social impact, uh, Kara also believes that investors in Angel City and in uh, Monarch Collective will make money because women's sports are a huge opportunity for investment. 
We're really excited to have Kara on the show to provide us some perspective of what this landmark moment in women's sports means for fans, for businesses, where the opportunities are uh, longer term. So without further ado, here's our interview with Kara Nortman of Monarch Collective and Angel City Football Club. Okay, Kara, thank you so much for joining us. I want to get into your work at Monarch Collective and, of course, uh, Angel City Football Club. There's a lot to dive into. Um, But I think before we do all that, just to kind of set the scene a little bit, um, a lot of people in the media and, and, and in the sports industry are calling this a watershed moment in women's sports. And I want to ask you... First of all, you know, is it? And if so, why? Yeah, I mean, I think of it as a watershed moment in culture and humanity, not to be too grandiose, but um, I think anytime you get surprised about something that you thought was one way in shifts, it's it's exciting. And so, but yeah, I mean, specifically in women's sports, um, you know, I think we've been there for five plus years, but now the data is showing up in kind of more conventional ways on broadcast media and in stadiums and things of that nature. So I, I do think the world is paying attention with each incremental data point that comes out, which is wonderful. And and tell me a little bit about why you're paying attention. When did you start paying attention and why? I started really paying attention in 2015. Um, and I do think sometimes these things start with a personal experience that open your eyes. And one of the most beautiful things about sports and gathering, um, is that, um, you know, I always say it made me feel 12 again. I was this 35 year old working mom in, um, the stands at the 2015 world cup finals in Vancouver women's finals, I should say. And, um, I hadn't followed sports for about a decade. I, I had been a you know, I'd played sports and I loved watching them. I was like an addicted, you know, Lakers fan, Dodgers fan, LA Kings fan growing up. But, you know, I like to either be good at things or just stop. And when I started having kids and working and doing everything else, I just stopped. But sitting in those stands, I truly felt 12 again. I just felt like this level of joy and people were face painting. It just felt very different than going to a men's sporting event, which I also enjoyed. And I sort of was like, God, I want more. And anyway, so that's when I started paying attention because I couldn't find more. And because I couldn't buy a jersey, watch content, meet up with these people again, I started doing research. And so I started out as just sort of a passionate fan. And then it turned into like a business interest. And and, and it kind of led me on a journey um, that moved through working with the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association on their pay equity fight, helping some of the players with their businesses, and then ultimately co-founding Angel City with um, Julie Ehrman and Natalie Portman in 2019. Amazing. Um, you never know what, you know, when um, it, something sparks some curiosity and it's just one of those moments and led you down this this path. It's pretty incredible. Um, but but tell me a little bit, just taking a step back, tell me about Monarch Collective as well and just sort of, you know, what it is. I know it's an investment fund, you know, at, at, at its core, but um, why did you start it and sort of how does this tie into everything we're talking about here? Yeah, well, I mean, we call it Monarch um, and my partner, Jasmine Robinson, and I call it Monarch for kind of two reasons. One um, are all the butterfly effects that lead to the best things in life, um, to your point, um, we were talking about before. And two is to build new kind of monarchies, because what we're doing at Monarch and we've just closed our first fund is we are the first investment platform to invest exclusively in women's sports teams, leagues and the right space adjacencies in a hands on operational way. Um, in a way where we can show up with 
you know, small checks or larger checks, but think, you know, kind of investment sizes that are appropriate for where that sport team and league are, and then bring the backgrounds that both Jasmine and I have from investing, from operating. She, she worked at the Niners and Bain and a great growth equity fund over time and bring that into these teams and bring over playbooks, bring over talent and bring diversity into you know, the investment group and into the operating group, which really does drive outcomes. It drives revenue in women's sports in a way that I haven't seen anywhere else in my career. And that's why I left tech and venture, which I never thought I would do. If you'd asked me in 2015 to go do it, it's just, this feels like, you know, life's work and very purposeful. And I'm curious, you know, obviously, um, your curiosity sort of tapped into and was, was serendipitous with this explosion of interest in, you know, push for pay equity across women's sports, um, you know, just a lot more interest from the consumer uh, point of view as well and distribution and marketing and like a lot of these avenues really started uh, opening up more. But from the perspective of an investor, an advertiser, um, what's what's the pitch? How do you pitch uh, people and, and entities on this? It starts with just actually community and joy and identity and finding your people and everyone feeling like they can have a place. And then the pitch on the business side is, um, you know, there's this virtuous cycle of like people, people showing up and caring about something. They become these very active consumers of content, of merchandise, of, you know, auxiliary products and things of that nature. And so, you know, um, we at Angel City, for example, have in our first year out contracted $50 million in sponsorship revenue, which everyone would have said was impossible a few years ago. I think we would have even thought it was impossible. But what we found was we had the support of a, many traditional sponsors in sports, Gatorade and BMO and, you know, um, Heineken and, and great, great people like that. But we also had completely new sponsors like DoorDash and Birdies and Jane Walker and Ritual and more female oriented brands that had never advertised in sports before. And I think we know that 80% of whatever the multi-trillion dollar consumer spend comes from, from women and from younger demographics. And that's disproportionately who's energized by women's sports because they feel a part of something that's bigger than just a game. Um, and then the final thing I'd say is there's this virtuous cycle around getting distribution, being able to watch and follow this stuff. So at Monarch, we're focused on sports that people want to put on television and on streaming services that people want to watch. There's sports people want to play, and there's sports that people want to watch. And then there's some sports that are both. And so, you know, there's this, like for Angel City, for example, you could be a season ticket holder and we have 16,000 of them more than the LA Clippers or the LA Kings. Um, but if you wanted to watch an Angel City game, you would have to go to four different streaming services. And I have my mother asking me how to use like Twitch, you know, Kara, how do I watch this game? And so as we say there to date, you couldn't be a lazy women's sports fan. And so as you get more people being able to follow the stories, the lifestyle content, the adjacent content with these incredibly interesting, not just virtuoso players on the field, but cultural icons off the field, you know, Megan Rapinoe, Alex Morgan, Crystal Dunn, um, you end up with this beautiful virtuous cycle. And, you know, on the women's side, we have less than a billion dollars in total global uh, revenue. Whereas on the men's side, it's half a trillion. Why is that? I mean, it's all, you know, it's all changing right now in this virtuous cycle from allowing people to follow 
you know, their interests and build a relationship by following these teams and leagues and, and players. So Kara, I want to ask a question about you, really. I mean, we we talk a lot on this podcast about profit and purpose and the relationship between the two of them. You, if, if what I believe is correct, you were a very successful venture capital investor making good money. You decided to focus all your attention or most of your attention on this new pursuit. Did you do it out of passion uh, and purpose or did you do it because you think there's a massive opportunity to make money or is it uh, equal combinations of both? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I would say now it's equal combinations of both. And I think the two reinforce each other um, in a way that I hadn't seen anywhere else in my career. And I'm a reasonably fiery, passionate person. And so we can um, tell <laughs> I had a, I, I just had a number of people reflect back to me the magnitude of my passion um, because um I, I can be passionate about a lot of things and I love tech. I mean, I, I was very happy in tech and tech operating and investing, which I did my entire career. But, you know, um, eventually I, I, I had what I would call my Jerry Maguire moment. And I just kind of wrote this manifesto. I mean, I literally was in a cathedral in Europe and thought, wow, what's what like, what are we all building and does it matter? And I had one of these moments um, and I, I came back and I realized like my passion was to change systems in, 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 in a place that I felt, you know, kind of well positioned to do it versus just kind of continue on in, in tech, which I found intellectually stimulating. So when you made the jump, you weren't 100 percent convinced that the that there was equal profit there as well. Um, you know, I, I, I was in the sense that I was living in the Angel City story. And I think, you know, I think uh, Oprah might have said this once, like sometimes the world dreams bigger for you than you can even dream for yourself. I mean, that really stuck with me. And I am a pretty big dreamer, but I'm also really practical. You know, I mean, I have three children, I have a mortgage, I have all of these things that, you know, in our 40s get us to be more sensible. And so, um, I believe deeply in the opportunity. I actually think it is going to be the biggest value creation opportunity I see in my career and many see in their career. But I also think it's just really important that we each sort of figure out what we're uniquely put here to do. And that may be raising a family. It may be, you know, teaching. It may be a lot of different things. And for me, this, this investing in women's sports, building teams, looking at things in a different way, like it is not hammer and nail. You know, you know I've, I've been an investor in private equity early stage growth, a public company in M&A, an operating role, sales teams, and, and it all plays out in women's sports where not everything looks the same as it does in more mature parts of the investing world. And so a degree of creativity and, and, and is kind of, I think, important. So I now believe that, but yeah, it was a little bit of a journey to walk away from a lot of the things that, that keep us doing what's, you know, kind of right in front of us in our 40s. Jason Gerzadis, the CEO of Deloitte US, is the sponsor of this podcast and joins me today. Welcome, Jason. Thank you, Alan. It's great to be here. I have a sense, Jason, from conversations on Leadership Next and elsewhere that business leaders today better understand the benefits of having a diverse set of voices at the management table. But what are some of the lessons you've learned through Deloitte's own DEI journey? 
It's got lots of lessons learned. I think we've certainly made progress. We feel like that's a function of a couple of things. Deloitte is very proud to have published twice a transparency report that sets forward long-term expectations for the diversity of our workforce and how we hold ourselves accountable. That is meant to be, and I think has served to be, a role model stance for us to take and one that we encourage all businesses to replicate. The second is to get specific. In addition to transparency, the specific objectives around gender diversity, around Black and Hispanic Latinx, as well as other cohorts that we have really established not only a recruitment and retention, but also advancement goals for. And finally, adding to the mix how we intend to hold ourselves accountable for supplier diversity, as well as longer term ambitions for us in this space. So our experience is somewhat emblematic of what a lot of large organizations go through, but for us, the commitment and transparency, as well as the specificity around cohorts has made a difference. And we've seen positive results in the last two years that we're hoping to build upon. Do we declare success? Absolutely not, but it's made all the difference for us. Jason, thanks for your perspective and thanks for sponsoring Leadership Next. Thank you. So you mentioned a few numbers uh, earlier, um, comparisons to some other professional uh, teams in, in the LA area. Um, tell us a little bit more about just what's been the impact so far and the the reach um, of Angel City. Um, and, and obviously there's a lot of star power attached to it, but just curious if you can tease out some of the the, the impact that it's had so far. You know, for me, I sort of, uh, you know, I, I'm a basketball player. I'm wearing my basketball necklace. Um, and and yet this started for me in soccer and football. And at Angel City, we're selling out stadiums. We have incredible sponsor relationships. You know, uh, the whole league is moving into an incredible, you know, a new phase of a media contract. We'll get distribution. But it's happening in many other teams in the NWSL and in football more broadly, globally, in England, in France, all over the place. So you have Kansas City. You have San Diego, you have Washington, you have new owners coming into Salt Lake, but you have Portland who was filling stadiums long before Angel City. There's things that are hard, hard about every job and every industry, but in tech, you're moving bits and bytes primarily. In sports, you got a whole lot of atoms moving around and you need to create an incredible in-stadium experience along with incredible storytelling. And for that privilege, you get access to, you know, a monopolistic IP entertainment platform um, that matters a lot to, you know, streaming and distribution. But it's happening in rugby in New Zealand, you know, where the black firms in their, um, you know, in their World Cup final in the fall, I was in New Zealand the next day, you know, sold out and had three times the share of an all blacks, the men's game on primetime you know, and, the, and brought new demographics, their traditional broadcaster or what's happening in the w, w or the NCAA women's basketball tournament where everyone talks about, you know, the 10 million people who showed up to watch the women's NCAA finals compared to the 14 million men's. Well, the women's were up 2x, the men's were down 15%. And the, I love watching men's basketball, but I think it's really important to look at trending and what matters to the modern consumer and not just look at absolute numbers, but look at what happens when you actually provide distribution and people can follow these players' stories and lives. So Angel City was super powerful because it helped me and the world believe on, you know, that this was possible across many, many different kinds of sports 
um, and countries. And it's now, it's not easy, but it is happening everywhere. Yeah, Kara, it's such a compelling story. And you're addressing what we all know was one of the key issues, which is access to capital. But beyond that, what are the remaining obstacles? What, what, what's out there that will keep you from succeeding at this? By the way, I thought Alan was going to bring up the Tar Heels, but that was a spectacular question. <laughs> oh, I, I have a hat here somewhere that I can put on if that if that helps. I have um, I have a lot of uh, Tar Heel friends. You know, Mia Hamm was one of our investors, and there's there's quite there is quite a community of Tar Heels in women's football. Um, however, I must tell you, I was born in Durham, so I'm kind of a Blue Devils fan. Oh, oh, that's really bad. I know, I know. I just thought we should get our differences out early on. Um, yeah, but uh, but anyway, we can agree to disagree. I mean, they're both blue, right? <laughs> anyway, um, but to answer your question, I still think it's really important to give people a growth mindset and optimism with if they're in a market and they believe in something and everybody else tells them it's impossible, because that's what was told to us. And we got, you know, 100 no's, we didn't have a stadium, we didn't have the license, you know, I'd been working on it sort of casually for three years prior. And, you know, if we had really focused on the obstacles people were telling us at the time, we would have stopped. And now I see myself sharing obstacles with other people. And I'm trying not to become the obstacle person. Um, I'm trying to become, to stay the obstacles, the way person. But to answer your question, I think the most important thing is talent, right? And I, and I do think like talent and purpose and connectivity to the why in a real way. Like a lot of people say purpose and profit, dig in, you know, see if they can talk for about, for it, for an hour, see if they ask questions, see where their yeses and nos are and their maybes are, um, you know, connecting with Natalie Portman was massive because I have a growth mindset. She had an even bigger growth mindset. And then she was like, don't you know how to do this? Like find, you know, a president and a stadium and, and investors. And I said, yeah, but like, I've never found a stadium before. That would be new for me. Um, but she had this kind of growth mindset vision, you know, that you can get from different people. They don't need to be Natalie Portman. They don't need to be the queen of Star Wars or the first female Thor. Um, and then finding Julie Ehrman, who is our president, who came out of, you know, tech and media. And I had known since high school, we actually played basketball together. But if you really want me to get specific, there are lots of obstacles. You ready to get scared? If this scares you off, you're not meant to do it. Stadium, consumer trends. Can you get the license? Um, if you're living in purpose, do you understand how to navigate that? Because everyone will be canceled if you live in purpose at some point in time. And is it real? And is it authentic? And how can you do your best to be high integrity, bring the right people in, issue clear, make mistakes, forgive each other, come together, right? How do you communicate with your community? Um, when do you take risks? What, you know, what, what do you challenge? What do you keep? But, you know, I'd say most people would talk about stadiums, media markets, quality of team. And then it's kind of like the right level of funding. You know, it's a little bit like Goldilocks funding in women's sports. Um, just not too much, not too little with the right people and having really clear intention, I think, around how those relationships will evolve. Because something goes wrong in sports every day, just like something goes wrong in tech or any business every day. But I always would say like, or this is what I'm starting to say in tech, the thing that goes wrong every day tends to be similar 
you know, and it's like a repeatable in sports. It's like something entirely new and often connected to like, you know, someone's soul or identity in a way that, you know, is, is sometimes really hard to navigate and you've got to do it with kindness and humanity. And, you know, when you do. It's it's interesting. Um, speaking of your investors, um, I wonder if you could just comment a little bit about um, this model that you created, kind of baking in impact, social impact, um, asking your investors to um, basically put 10% of sponsorship money um, towards the LA community at large. And give us some examples of that. And also, why did you take this approach? I mean, obviously, great PR, great impact to actually have, but is it also sort of like a little bit of a vetting process for who you're bringing in as investors? Yes. And, 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 and also we went fast at times. So it's both things. And I think, you know, knowing when to go fast and slow is probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned through Angel City. But to answer your question specifically on the impact side, you know, from the beginning, we really tried to engage our community and have them challenge us and ask questions three times, what people in tech call first principles. And so when we would go to do something like roll out our first sponsor model, we'd sort of say, well, what feels right to us as, you know, majority female-owned, female-led team that wants to not reinvent the wheel just to reinvent it, but do something that feels authentic and can tie to our local community. Um, Julie and I are like, you know, grew up in LA. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. She grew up here and Natalie's a longtime resident. And so what we did is um, we created a program where let's say with DoorDash, who is our kit sponsor or birdies, you know, like um, uh, Bianca and Marissa were some of our first supporters and I love our birdies game every year. Where like with with um, DoorDash, we we take ten percent of that contract and put it into delivering food to food insecure parts LA of LA, food pantries and meals and groceries, and then bringing our community to events around that. So we have hundreds of thousands of meals and groceries now that have gone in, and I think it'll be close to a million dollars that goes into the community from DoorDash. And it became so meaningful. And like with Birdies, it's supporting female entrepreneurs. And with each, you know, with each sponsor, we really try to think about, you know, what is meaningful to you, what's meaningful to us, and what's aligned with our values around equity, around access, around education. And then we create content around it. We have a content machine and we use it to activate the community in the real world, online and in the stadium. And so they've become incredibly successful in a way where a lot of teams are now uh, replicating that model and it's becoming mandatory when they work work with teams and we are bringing a lot more sponsors over and also really value the ones who've been in sports since the beginning. So um, I think given uh, where we are in time right now, we probably, and, and given that we're talking about women's soccer, we should probably talk about uh, the Women's World Cup. Um, this is the first one that they're playing um, after very publicly fighting for and, and winning um, for uh, equality with the male players in 2019. And I know you were involved with that. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what's significant here? What has really changed? I know there have been shifts, broadcast rights, et cetera. Um, but, but what really feels different to you uh, in a meaningful way this time around and different to the players? Yeah. I mean, I can't speak for the players, even though I try, try to learn as much as possible from them. But for me, um, it feels gosh, like um, less existential. The last World Cup felt almost existential. I remember sitting in the stands at the Spain game in the quarterfinals and we hadn't really started Angel City yet, kind of feeling like, wow, we need to go all the way um, to really win this pay equity battle. 
Um, and, and I didn't know at the time that the viewership numbers would be, you know, I think they were North of a billion, whereas they were only a couple hundred million, the game I'd went to the games I went to in, uh, 2015. And so, um, I think having pay equity, having FIFA break out separate broadcast contracts and you know, the press is loving to talk about all the things that have gone wrong. Great. It's always messy when you start. The fact that FIFA has done it and they're out there and they're talking about it, like, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. It doesn't mean we shouldn't try to bring the best talent in and create accountability and shoot for the stars. But like, this is a massive first step, right? And oh yeah, we need to audit you know, kind of prize money to make sure it doesn't just go to, you know, kind of each country's organization, but it actually gets to the players and that they can get living wages and then they can get a lot more. But I think, you know, I mean, I won't know. I always know when I sit in the stands and it's like, you know, so fun that with my job, Monarch Collective, and we invest not just in football or soccer, but basketball and racing and tennis and golf all, you know, global um, kind of media revenue oriented women's sports, but that this is now my job. <laughs> but when I get in that stadium, yeah, it's my job. That's amazing, right? I mean, this is what my executive coach has always told me. When work feels like play, you're doing the right thing. Um, oh, by the way, you still have to grind, but it's still, it's like, you know, sometimes I pinch myself. Yeah, no, that, that well, that gets exactly to the question I wanted to ask you, because I know we have a lot of listeners to this podcast who are struggling with exactly this, this issue of how do you, uh, they're entrepreneurs, and how do you align the pursuit of profit with the pursuit of passion and purpose? And, and, and is it an either or, or is it a both? And what advice do you have to them as they're trying to uh, figure out this journey? Yeah. You know, I've like actually maybe started writing this book. I've always wanted to start writing now that I've said it, maybe I'll do it, but I think it would be like, at least one chapter would be on the power of the side hustle and the power of hobbies and the power of just true curiosity and joy that doesn't need to immediately become your job. And that was very hard for me um, uh, because I tend to keep them separate and I had so much identity connected to the job. And then you, if you're fortunate enough to have a job, you know, that pays you in a reasonable way or more than a reasonable way, it's very hard to leave it. Right. Um, and you like it. Right. Um, but I think what I would say, my, my specific advice is um, when you don't have the energy for anything other than your job and your personal commitments, don't put pressure on yourself. Just move through life and allow yourself to go fallow and do that. I think sometimes there's almost too much pressure to find your purpose and connect it to your profit. Um, but then when you find something that keeps coming up, that you find fun, that gives you energy, don't need to make it your job right away. You know, I always, um, I didn't, you know, for 10 years, I was just kind of childbearing and working and all this sort of stuff. And the road to Angel City and now Monarch for me, it really started with nonprofit gender equity work. And I was fortunate to be part of the 15 women that started the big gender equity nonprofit in tech called All Raise. And then I was on the board of Time's Up where I met Natalie. Um, and I, everyone I think thought Angel City was my latest nonprofit thing. And I, you know, I, and so it wasn't my full-time job and it was just something I did on the side to build community, brought me joy. So my advice is to just have fun, follow energy, do sports, do things you enjoy, go to dinner. If you didn't enjoy the person you had dinner with, even if they're your best friend from, you know, the time you were five, go to dinner with somebody else and see where that Move goes, on. see what you talk about. Yeah. 
And embrace embrace the side hustle. Yeah, embrace the side hustle. The art of the side hustle. Like it'd be my version of the art of the deal, I guess. <laughs> we 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 anxiously look forward yeah. to the book. And maybe in 2070, 2075, guys. I, I think we can both subscribe to your uh, philosophy here wholeheartedly, except for your allegiance to the Blue Devils. But Oh, yeah, that won't work. No, <laughs> n- no Duke. Thank you so much, Kara, again, and, uh, c- and congratulations. It's very exciting. No, thank you, guys. Leadership Next is edited and produced by Alexis Hott. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Our executive producer is Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a product of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 